doubt you'll send the chaos in the streets. We must make an example, or France will fall. What would you do if this assignment of defense was transferred to you? I promise you brilliant successes. costume you have on. This is my uniform. I led the French victory at Toulon. What is your name? Napoleon. As the course of my life has changed. Napoleon. I'm destined for greatness. But those in power will only see me as a sword. I suggest you take the throne as a king. Shall we vote? This vermin has held the world hostage with his egotism and his lack of simple good manners. You think you're great? It's nothing without me. All Europe is uniting forces against me. What's the outcome of this if you don't succeed? Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host Rob Daniel and as always I'm very happy to say I'm joined by my learned, my historically accurate co-host, Mr Rob Wallace. As always it's a pleasure to be here. I can't make any promises on that front. (laughs) You have your own truth. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll be uh, flying by the seat of my pants. Well, on this episode, we will be talking about... Well, what are we talking about, Rob? Uh, on this episode, we are talking about the uh, the latest instalment in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvels, and um, Napoleon, the latest instalment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> but before that, hmm, uh, I have three things that are troubling me. All of them are about Five Nights at Freddy's. Actually, no, there's two things that are troubling me and one thing that was just worth a mention. So the first thing that's troubling me is that film has done 258 million around the world and has cleared 100 million at the US box office. It's not quite at the Nun 2 yet, but I think the Nun 2, unless I'm misremembering, might be the highest grossing horror film of the year so far, which means that Five Nights at Freddy's is either going to be the second or number one grossing horror film of the year. How well did Pope's Exorcist do? They didn't do that. <laughs> I don't know what it did, but I think it might have it might have done over 100 million around the world. I'm not sure if it did. That was not well received. But Five Nights at Freddy's, oh my God. Yeah, it turns out that the PG-13 meant that a lot more people went to see it and only it had a 75% drop off week on week in its <laughs> second week. Yeah, which... because those children have access to the internet and they can download it. Or either, or they've watched all of it in some form or other on tickety-tock. Well, I think it's two things. I think one of them is that word of mouth killed it. Because I was looking on tickety-tock and Le Gram and Twitter. I think you mean X. 
I don't. <laughs> I mean, well, it's going to be an X platform because have you seen that Disney and Comcast, all the big media companies have pulled their advertising from it and IBM as well because Elon Musk tweeted out his support of an anti-Semitic tweet. Wow. So anyway, for the time that Twitter has left or X before it's an X platform. We're, we're definitely going to do like that when that goes right you know. yeah DJ but don't give that away now because <laughs> other people will do it I'm going to have to bleep that now we'll do something when Twitter inevitably collapses hopefully that's soon anyway the word of mouth from all the fans was not good on Five Nights at Freddy's and a lot of them were kind of saying oh I'm about to see it I'm about to see it and then a couple of hours later it's not very good guys so there was a massive drop off it was also available in the States on the Peacock platform same day which, as they said on the film cast, shows just how little people are interested in subscribing to Peacock that this was the number one <laughs> film that smashed all records and did 80 million at the US box office when you can watch it on telly. Like, yeah, that is very surprising that it did 80 million in its opening weekend when it was also day and date with a free, with a subscription service. But anyway, so that's the first thing that's troubling me. The second thing that's troubling me, Rob, is that I, when listening back to edit to the episode that we did at Five Nights at Freddy's, heard myself say Five Nights at Freddy's the entire episode. And I thought, if only I had a wingman who could have corrected me on that. Look, I am the first to admit when I make mistakes. I simply never do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fine. (laughs) I just know that I'm on my own. (laughs) Even when someone's sitting across from me, I'm on my own. It's like, I thought you were my goose. Never stop your enemy when he's making a mistake. Am I your enemy? What? <laughs> well, that explains everything. But, um... I'm playing a game of 4D chess. Do you mean chess? <laughs> the three dimensions plus time. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, you are Goose. Just at the end of Top Gun, not at the beginning. So that was the second thing. Uh, the third thing that was just very, very coincidental was that after we... I think it was the same day that we recorded the Five Nights at Freddy's podcast... I then went to see... Oh, God. One of those annoying titles I can never hold in my head. Like Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah. Actually, yeah, so I'm going to leave that in now, aren't I? Because that was quite funny. <laughs> I went to see the new film by the direct... Uh, sorry, by the writer of The Wind. Because, of course, Five Nights at Freddy's was directed by Emma Tammy, who was the director of The Wind. Fantastic, gothic, western. That's currently, I think, on Amazon Prime. It's also on Shudder. Was the best film of 2019 that I saw. You should definitely go and see it. Or you should definitely call it up on your streaming service. But I saw a film called Lovely Dark and Deep, which is a new horror film that is directed by the writer of The Wind. And while it's not great, it is so much better than Five Nights at Freddy's. It's a folk horror, but actually it's a modern folk horror, which immediately makes it better than most of the folk horrors I've seen this year, which say, well, look, it looks like we're set in the 70s. It's about this young woman who becomes a park ranger. She goes to just do her park ranger stuff in one of the vast national parks in the States, but I think it was filmed abroad. Anyway, and things start happening. And it's kind of Blair Witch. Someone goes missing and they have to look for them. And there's like a history of ramblers going missing. And it's a mood piece. I mean, it does have a plot, but it is one of those where it's more about atmosphere. And it doesn't explain anything which I think is very good. It just suggests that you are in a place where the laws of nature are just a bit different and the trees have their own agenda. But we're not going to explain anything beyond that, which I think makes it just 
a lot better than, again, most of the folk horror I've seen this year, which is like, yes, we know there's going to be a history to this and there was something buried in the soil and there's an ancient thing that now has to be a little... My, my, uh, my Starvaker review got shared on somebody else's site. Oh, did it? As a succinct spoiler review... <laughs> <laughs> what was the site? It was actually, weirdly, um, it was somebody putting together folk horror reviews. Oh, okay, right. If you want to hear more about the Starvake review, listen to the previous episode, or go to... Uh, of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com, type in Starvaker. It is a spoiler. It's a spoiler, and it's also a reference to Heathers, so... It is, and it's also a very, very good review of that not very good film. So, as I said before, my review is basically a link to Rob's review. And because my review, I think, was the first one up on IMDb, it got a lot of page impressions. And you could just see people go, what the fuck is what this? Is this? <laughs> it is something more imaginative than pretty much anything in Starbaker. So yeah, so Lovely Dark and Deep is not going to be number one at the US box office anytime soon. I mean, I would imagine it will go pretty much straight to Shudder. It's that sort of film. But it's a better film than Five Nights at Freddy's. It just is. So that's enough about Five Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> I hope it doesn't overtake The Nun 2 because I like The Nun 2 and I didn't like Five Nights at Freddy's. It's $258 million, a quarter of a billion that film did. Yeah, kids are dumb. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with that. Okay. It's like, so coming from the two grown adult men who went to see it, it's like, kids are dumb. Yeah. As I say on the episode, the reason that I dragged you there and I feel terrible about it is because The Wind is such a brilliant film. Um, the what? <laughs> the Wind. <laughs> I'm making a face suggesting I haven't seen it when Rob knows I have. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He's funny. <laughs> He's funny in a way that doesn't work on a podcast. <laughs> His facial expressions are the best people. It's often said. <laughs> it's often said, yes. 2024, the year of the movie vodka, of the movie Rob, Robcast Vodcast. <laughs> We're going to workshop the title. Anyway, they did not workshop the title. They did not workshop the title. <laughs> so, shall we move on to Le Marvels, as I don't think it's known in France, or it could be. Yes, Lear Marvels. Uh, shall I get open the IMDb plot synopsis? Yeah, if you like, but I mean, we're not going to spend too much time on this one. But yes, let's see what they say it's about. But it does come up when I Google Lear Marvels. Carol Danvers gets her powers entangled with those of Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau, forcing them to work together to save the universe. I and mean, that's, yeah, that's exactly it. On the other, like, it's assuming that you know who any of those people are. I mean, I guess if you're watching a Marvel movie, you probably know who Carol Danvers is. Captain Marvel did a billion, didn't it? And she's also in Endgame. Is she in Infinity War as well? Yeah, because she, yeah, she turns up at the end of Infinity War and she kind of turns the tide of battle until Thanos gets his hand on the Infinity Gauntlet. Oh, right. Unless I'm remiss. No, no, because she turns that. up at the end of Endgame. Okay, then, then no, then no. Then, then I've just misremembered that. Which is not surprising because Infinity War is shit. Not memorable. Endgame, though. Brilliant. So this one is obviously a film that didn't do 80 million at the US box office. It did something like 45 million, I think. So this did just over half of what Five Nights at Freddy's did in its opening weekend at the US box office. I think it did just over 100 million around the world. It's a flop. It's the lowest opening for a Marvel film to date. It is the shortest Marvel film to date. It is, I would say, not the worst Marvel film to date, but it contains everything that's good and bad about Marvel. But we can get on to that. What did you think of it? Perfectly adequate. It's like, oh, this is a three-star film. I'm not bored by this. Everyone in this is good. It's nice to see Samuel L. Jackson enjoying himself after 
fucking the three episodes, whatever it is I watched of Secret Invasion, uh, Brie Larson, Tiana Paris, and Irman Vellani have very good chemistry. Yeah, so um, and Brie Larson is Carol Danvers, Tiana Paris is Monica Rambeau, and Irman Vellani is Kamala Khan. And they do have good chemistry, don't they? I mean, the best scenes in the film are them just kind of hanging out. <laughs> yeah, when they use their powers, it's all in the trailer. When they use their powers, they switch places which means they could be anywhere in the universe and suddenly they're, oh my God, yeah, where am I? Why am I in this girl's bedroom? Or why am I in space, etc. There's a scene when they are trying to use that to their advantage and in like a training scene that I thought was actually one of the best scenes in the film. It was really funny and you could see that there was like, a lot of it was not them acting. It was kind of just them doing it on the day. So there was some yeah, very, very natural laughing going on. I'm about to, by the way, I'm about to show you a photo of the face of the guy who plays the um, Skrull Emperor. Oh, yeah, go on. This is just immediately funny. Oh, yes, it is him, isn't it? (laughs) So, yes, uh, so Gary Lewis plays the Skrull Emperor. And who is Gary Lewis? He's just a British actor that you'll recognise from various things. He's he's the dad in Billy Elliot. Yes, that's it. I was going to say, yes, that's the one. He's best known as the dad in Billy Elliot. Ballet! But yes, he is the dad in Billy Elliot. I did recognise him as in, I, I know who's under that makeup, but I can't place him. Yes, it's the dad from Billy Elliot. So what's wrong with this film? is that I gave no shits about the baddie or their motivation or anything like that. I mean, the baddie is played by... Zoe Ashton. So one more time. Zoe Ashton. Yes, indeed. Well, in any case, it was a big evening in her uh, in her family home that day because she's married to Tom Hiddleston. Absolutely. So, uh... And it was the day of the... Of the um, what's it, what seems to be the show finale of Loki. Did they meet on a Marvel thing or would, have they crossed paths in their... That's a very good MCU question. journey. Anyway, while you're looking that up... Yeah, so Zoe Ashton, I mean, well, she's fine, but she's fine the same way that Christian Bale is fine in Thor, Love and Thunder. She's a good actor, she can do her job, but she's got nothing to work with. They first met while co-starring in the 2019 play Betrayal. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so it's like one of those where it's like, okay, so uh, yeah, I don't care what you need to do. Um, all you're going to do is cause there to be some fight scenes. How good are the fight scenes? Uh, the action scenes are good. Not great, but good. There's one in a living room... Which actually reminded me of the fight in the pub in The World's End, the Edgar Wright film. Which came out 10 years ago. I know, I know. That's a film that is really, really good up until the point where it turns into something else. And then it's just like, oh, okay, well, this is okay, but it was much more interesting what you were doing before. Yeah, so I I do think I wish that Edgar Wright had done an MCU film because I think he would have brought some of the... He he did Ant-Man, right? Yeah, indeed. Well, that's the thing is that at the the world's end, that scene in the pub is a Jackie Chan action scene. And the scene in the Marvels in the living room and then all in all other spaces because they keep zipping about is a Jackie Chan action scene, but just not as good as what Edgar Wright would have done with it, I don't think. But no, the action is, it was good enough. I did enjoy watching the film, and I like the fact that it was only an hour and 45 minutes. It was just, as you said, perfectly adequate. Not particularly substantial. I actually, the next day, I went to a press screening of The Red Shoes, and that's a film that, yeah, is just great, and that took me quite a few years to really get on with that movie, but oh my god, that is well worth a go, and is getting a big screen release, and if it's playing in your area, then go and see The Red Shoes, the Power and Pressburg film. Very good. I was sitting there thinking, I did go to cinema last night, what was it that I saw? Hmm... Thinking, oh no, is this early onset Alzheimer's? No, it's just the fact that the Marvels isn't very memorable. And it took me a moment to remember what I'd seen the previous night. So, yes. Although the Marvels does have, in the role of um, Darben, who's the Zoe Ashton antagonist in, in her role of her henchman, an actor called Daniel Ings, who I met many years ago while a runner. And he's lovely. 
Okay, well, that's nice. He was very, very nice to me, being a very in- nervous and inexperienced runner on oh. a TV set, on a, uh, the set of a TV pilot. What was the pilot? It never got released. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. It was a comedy involving junior doctors, which, of course, has never been tapped in any other form. So what are you referring to there? Scrubs, the Scrubs sequel. Yeah. So yeah, so just to quickly finish off the Marvels, so it's directed and co-written by Nia DaCosta. She did the Candyman sequel that everyone called a reboot, but it wasn't a reboot, it was a sequel, and it was very good. It was, I mean, that was a good movie, that was. I thought that was a great follow-up to Candyman, a great updating of the horror politics of what's going on in that first movie, the original Candyman. It's also written by, uh, so it's written by three women. Um, so you've got Nia DaCosta, you've got Megan McDonnell, and um, Elisa Karasik. So yeah, it's all fine. It's just that there's nothing to this that really differentiates it from any other Marvel film other than the fact that it's a bit shorter. And I did spend a lot of the time thinking, I'm not interested in the baddie. I also don't remember if they're from Captain Marvel or are they from Secret Invasion, which I never watched. But the one last thing I will say is that, well, Brie Larson's great. Tierna Paris is great. But Iman Vellani is just such a wonderful ball of energy in this film that it's like, I might give Miss Marvel another go, actually, because I'm really just enjoying watching your enthusiasm. And you're just very good as Miss Marvel. So, yeah, I think I might give this another go. Because I kind of watched the first episode and thought, yeah, that's fine, but I don't know. And then just never went back to it. So any other words on the Marvels before we go on to Napoleon? The what? <laughs> yes. I say, le what? <laughs> very good. Although it does make me think what's going to happen with the MCU now ostensibly because of the strikes that have been going on there's only one marvel film being released next year which is deadpool 3 i think that marvel are heaving a huge sigh of relief over that because they are i think having to do some serious mitigation of what's happening now with their plan because everyone's getting bored of marvel and no one really cares about it i mean they that thing that they've done recently well no one really cares about it it's of course is very very lucrative but the tide is turning a bit I mean, the thing that they've announced recently that they'll put up a note at the beginning saying you don't need to have seen any other Marvel thing to enjoy this one. That seems a bit desperate. It's like putting up a poster at your workplace. You don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps. It's like... Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, also a kitten with a hang in there. Like, <laughs> yeah, hang yeah. in there. We'll get Secret Wars done. <laughs> we will do the Kang Dynasty. Who knows who's going to be in it? Yes. I voted for Kodos. Well, what do you think is going to happen with Marvel? I think they'll scale it back, then they'll go away and retool. Because the issue is that, I think part of it is that it's not... In the first couple of phases, you had very identifiable... Even if they weren't particularly well-known before the MCU started, you had very identifiable heroes. You don't anymore. You don't have an Avengers. I know they're setting up the Young Avengers, da-da-da. Is it the New Avengers or the Young Avengers? I think it's the Young Avengers. It could be the New... Anyway, it doesn't matter. Avengers version 2. But it, when you had Iron Man and Captain America, oh, it's Iron Man, it's Captain America. Now nobody really cares. And it could just be that it's franchise fatigue. But it could also be that I, th- I think a big part of it is that you don't have that identification in a way that you used to have. Mm. I think it's one of those things where it's like, we spent all this time, with it has to be said, very, very good actors making the roles their own. And now someone else is doing it, but they're doing it kind of immediately. And there have been 35, I think it's 35 films in 15 years. It's like, well, well done. <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing achievement, but it was, it's also enough now. After Endgame, they should have just given a, a break. break of like at least a couple of years. And then it was straight into the next one. 
It's like, okay, so that was just another instalment then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then all the series came out and some of them were good and some of them weren't. And it's like, it's just, it's just everything. So therefore, you're surprised that people are saying no to this now? You shouldn't be. Because that was one of the big things with Loki. It was like, oh, the finale is... Uh, no, actually, no, I like Loki, Loki as a whole. I did watch two seasons of it. The finale is like, oh, the finale is really good. The finale really landed it. And everyone's going like, oh, it's, it's Marvel, but good. Yeah, which is saying, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? And I think that the superhero cycle is kind of coming to a close now because, well, Five Nights at Freddy's did more than The Flash. It did more than Blue Beetle. It did more than The Marvels. Blue Beetle, now available on HBO Max. Have you seen that? Yes. And? It's fine. It's perfectly adequate, right? It's perfectly adequate. (laughs) Yes, perfectly adequate. But there's other films that are not, they're maybe better. Anyway, so that was a lot about The Marvels as well. Sorry, Le, Le Blue Beetle. <laughs> no, Le Beetle Bleu. There we go. <laughs> this man of French is. <laughs> what? <laughs> Hashtag fluent. Right, well, to go from the Marvels to something that I would say is more than perfectly adequate is Ridley Scott's Napoleon. So what is the story of Ridley Scott's Napoleon? Let me just get up the IMDb synopsis. It's Napoleon in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's about this guy who works for a government agency called Uncle. And <laughs> it's not that. It's Napoleon Solo. <laughs> An epic that details the chequered rise and fall of French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte and his relentless journey to power through the prism of his addictive, volatile relationship with his wife, Josephine. There are a lot of mixed metaphors in that. There are, which actually is quite apt in terms of it's a big, sweeping, epic muddle of a sentence, <laughs> which is kind of like the film. The chequered rise and fall... It's an interesting choice of words. Yeah, because checkered, to my knowledge, is like checkered flag. It's like you. Well, it kind of means ups and downs. Yeah, it's like yeah, there were good times and bad times. It's... But it's like yeah, the the ups and downs of the rise and fall. It's like yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, this was someone who was very pleased with themselves. Yeah, so this is which a... we never experienced on this podcast. No, we are, no not at all. <laughs> we, are the, we are the opposite of self. We are self unsatisfied. Yeah. <laughs> So this is directed by Ridley Scott, uh, who is no stranger to an epic. It stars Joaquin Phoenix as Napoleon. It stars Vanessa Kirby as Josephine. And it stars... Well, I'm not going to say... Because Rupert Everett's in it, but I'm not going to say who he plays, because I was very, very pleased when I found out who he was playing. And it stars Julian Ryan Tut as... Who does he play again? Uh, Julian Ryan Tut plays... Sears. Yeah, I can't remember who he was. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> he was lots of names, many of them French. He was instrumental in the revolution. So this basically charts the, as it says, the rise and fall of Napoleon from his time as a officer in the French Revolution, uh, where he proved himself to be a brilliant tactician. He scored some key successes against the British during the time of the revolution. He was then elevated to Brigadier General, and then I can't remember what it was after that, but he basically rose up through the ranks and took it upon himself to spread French influence through the known world, which meant he went and conquered lots of different countries, particularly in the East. This elevated his standing back home. He was seen as a national hero. This is all taking place against the background of the French Revolution, which was something that went on for decades, and they just kept stopping and starting the revolution and heroes of the revolution would then become villains and they would be guillotined as well. Did you recognise the actor who plays Robespierre? I did not. Who was he? He's an actor called Michael Gibson. Uh, let me double check I've actually got that right because that's right. I, I know it's him. It's just whether or not I'm getting them right. Yes, it is Michael Gibson. And Michael Gibson, I best know, having seen him in the role of King George in Hamilton for which he won an Olivier in, the oh, UK, okay, right. in London. 
So you're Robespierre, but you're kind of still best known for playing King George. Yeah, because he's only in a couple of scenes as Robespierre in this. And, and Ben Miles is in it. And Ben Miles, who either you know, you probably know from, might know from Coupling. Yeah. You might know the fact that he played uh, Cromwell, um, Thomas, not Oliver, in the stage adaptation of the Hilary Mantel books. So what else has Michael Gibson been in that people might know? Uh, he's seen? in Bodies on Netflix at the moment. He's, oh, there's okay. a new series on Netflix that people... Yeah, he's, uh, he plays one of, he plays like the senior officer in that. Oh, right. I hear good things about that. So yeah, so Napoleon gets back to France and is a national hero and basically is taken into a group of people who say, this is the way to run the country and we can use you as our sword. And if you've seen the trailer, you see that he rises pretty darn high in the French national and political infrastructure. Ridley Scott is a director who runs, for me, very hot and cold. But I'm going to get onto that in just a second. Because first of all, Rob, what did you think of Napoleon? I I thought there was some amazing stuff in there. I found it a little bit... Despite, as you say, the, the kind of epic scope of it and the ups and downs, I found it a little bit tonally one note, which I get because you're trying to maintain a consistent tone across this two and three quarter hour film. But that did occasionally, I thought, like, you could have mixed this up a little bit. A Ridley Scott, who is 85 years old. Yeah, so what was the tone that you thought the film was just maintaining when when it started um there's there's a scene with them in a pub and it's all set to chamber music as a lot of the film is you know contrapuntally set to chamber music and i thought oh this is doing barry linden which makes sense in terms of kubrick had a napoleon movie on the boil that he never got to make yeah it doesn't quite maintain that kind of ironic counterpoint which i kind of wish it did it's a less disciplined film i imagine than Kubrick's Napoleon would have been yeah. to which Ridley Scott's going you're comparing me to an unmade film from a from a legendary director like fucking stop it it's like it's, it's still a very good film yeah um, also uh, Mark Bonner the actor Mark Bonner when made up to look young looks remarkably like Simon Pegg which I found very strange yes he does so who does he play Mark Bonner plays and again I'm just I'm just going to read out some French names which unless you're a student of history Will, will, may or may not mean anything. Well, was Mark Bonner, was he one of the English? Was he... No, 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 Mark Bonner played Junot. He was like his aide-de-camp, the one who play, who tells him about um, Napoleon, about Josephine's infidelity. No, I'm not thinking of him. Yes, I know what you mean, that. I'm thinking of somebody else. There's an, also an actor in it called Scott Handy, who is good. He plays Marshal Berthier, who bears quite a strong resemblance in terms of the um, um, Barry Lyndon comparison to Murray Melvin, the late Murray Melvin. Yes, he does, yeah. Um, and Murray Melvin was also in The Devils. He has a very, very thin and memorable face. I saw him once at a screening of The Devils. He was very, very gracious when all the people were saying how great he was. I saw him once at Waterloo. Waterloo Station, ironically. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah, as I said, Ridley Scott runs pretty hot and cold for me as a director. I think The Duelists, which at the time was ironically called the second most beautiful film ever made after Barry Lyndon. So Barry Lyndon, which is during the Napoleonic era... And Kubrick worked with NASA to make special lenses that could be lit with candles. Because, of course, film is needs a lot of light, but he worked with a lens that was kind of so fast that um, you could film by candlelight. And it is a gorgeous film, Barry Lyndon. And it is funny. When you see it with an audience, you realise just how funny that film is. Anyway, Ridley Scott made a film called The Duelist, which stars Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. is set during the Napoleonic era. I think it's about a Russian officer and a French officer who just have this duel that goes on for decades and decades and decades. And it is... Sorry, Highlander. Yeah. It, well, yeah, that's right. Because, of course, that was an inspiration for Greg Wyden when he was writing Highlander. 
and it's a great film as well. And actually, yeah, because also Highlander is also about a Frenchman and a Russian. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, there's a lot of things swirling around. So Ridley Scott did The Duelist, he did Alien, he did Blade Runner. As an opening three-film volley, that's pretty darn impressive. And shout out to Adrian Zach, friend of the podcast, who Blade Runner is his favourite film, and he has a lot of Blade Runner memorabilia, um, as well as the film on about 19 different formats or something. It's all very impressive, his Blade Runner collection. Including some you've never heard of. <laughs> yes, indeed. Charcoal etchings. This is just a frisbee. <laughs> yeah. The thing, though, with Ridley Scott that I find is that well, he was an ad man. He is often a case of substance... No, sorry, style over substance, even. His films sometimes are empty. Like, his Robin Hood movie is interminable. It is a dull, nothing movie. And a lot of his... I mean, I don't like Gladiator. I don't get the love for Gladiator. I thought that Gladiator was a film that... Which also starts Whacking Phoenix, of course. It's like, this is dull. The action's not good. It doesn't have any life to it. It's just lots and lots of posturing. I don't know why anyone is comparing this to Spartacus or the Vikings or any of the great sword and sandals or um, adventure movies of the 50s. Yeah, kind of hot and cold on old Ridley. This one, for the first hour or so, I thought, this is fine. You're not getting any psychological insight into Napoleon, which is, I've seen Scott say in interviews, there's over 10,000 books that have been written about Napoleon. A lot of research would have been done into what made the man tick. You don't get a huge amount of that in this film. And he comes across as... Well, he comes across as almost a bit on the spectrum sometimes. And he comes across as quite buffoonish, quite childlike, just very, very good. And there's a great tantrum. On the battlefield. There's a great tantrum that he has in front of the uh, British ambassador. There is a brilliant line that he comes out with. I was watching it thinking, this is fine. It's actually quite talky. I was surprised at just how talky it was. And some of it is not interesting. And it's also great when, when it's talking, it's like... Ridley clearly, when they started shooting, went, maybe have a go at doing the accent of where your character's from. And if you're not good at it, I'll tell you, and then you'll just do your normal voice. And it seems that most people got told to do do their normal voice. Yeah, there aren't a lot of people doing French accents in this film. Joaquin Phoenix is not doing a French accent in this film, which I think is probably for the best. It is a melange of accents, most of them English. There's a lot of English people. I think you mean a bouillabaisse. Yes, indeed. There's a bouillabaisse of accents in this film. (laughs) It's very good. A lot of them English, a lot of them comedians. There's a lot of Brit comedians in this movie. So I was watching it thinking, yep, okay, this is okay. It's just another Ridley Scott film. But I have to admit, it did win me over. And it won me over because Ridley Scott was doing what he does best, which is attention to detail in the frame. I mean, talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is a cinematic universe. He has created such an immersive world in the costuming. A lot of it seems to be done practically. I'd like to see a making of the film to see just how much of it was green screen, just how much of it was real locations, because a lot of it seems to be done practically with a lot of extras, all of whom are costumed. It's a very grand movie. And I was thinking, I am really getting into this now. I'm getting into the world that's being created and just even though, of course, no one's speaking French, how authentic this seems in terms of the squalor, but also the splendour. And, oh, how wonderful it would be to just have a time machine to go back and just have a look around at this and just see how You'd immediately would... contract something. You'd immediately... Well, that's the thing. Syphilis. Yeah, yeah you would... <laughs> Airborne, Airborne syphilis. syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a punk band that's missing a name, isn't there? Airborne Syphilis. <laughs> but you would, you would, well, you probably vomit at just how much everything stinks. 
Can you imagine going into a street in London or Paris? Be like, everything smells of shit. <laughs> Even the posh areas have a bit of a whiff of shit. But the look of it was so opulent and grand and majestic and it kind of reminded me of a very good Russian version of War and Peace that won the best foreign film Oscar in the 60s and uh, Criterion put it out in the States and it's it's a big movie it's about five hours or something and it's pretty grand and it's pretty good and the kind of film you don't get anymore. A pretty good five hour movie tell me. No 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 I I mean as in like yeah, yeah I'm under. It's a great movie it's very big it's opulent it's grand it's got thousands of extras in it it's a film you don't get anymore this reminded me of that a little bit obviously there's there's lots of cgi in this movie but i did really uh, respond to the world that he created and some of the battle scenes are very very good it annoys me that the trailer gave away the battle scene on the ice because that's a reveal and there's enough before that happens you could put into a trailer without having to spoil that because that would have been a great moment i think for the audience to see that without knowing what was coming because it is a reveal. It's like, well, fucking hell. You could have used other amazing shots and not spoiled that anyway. Yeah. I mean, it is incredibly well shot. And Ridley and his historical epics. Is it Darius Wolski who shot it? It is. Where well, he worked with Scott before on The Martian. He actually worked with Scott's brother, Tony Scott, on Crimson Tide. Um, he did Prometheus. He did House of Gucci. He did The Last Duel. I haven't seen The Last Duel, actually. Have you seen that? The Last Duel was good. It's on, it's on Disney+. Plus. Oh, is it? Oh, okay, all right. He also did News of the World, which is the Paul Greengrass film with Tom Hanks, the Western, which I thought was great. But yeah, he's a world-class cinematographer. And yeah, his visuals do look great. So who does Vanessa Kirby play? Vanessa plays Josephine Bonaparte. She does. Born Marie-Josephine Rostache de la Pagerie. <laughs> it was a good French accent. And you really, really lent into it, which is fine. Yeah, I, I had no idea that her... Name wasn't Josephine, that her real name was Marie. Marie-Joseph Rosette. <laughs> we are channeling Peter Sellers right now. Vanessa Kerb is great, and I always like her in all of her films. She was good in this film, even though I thought the character of Josephine, you didn't really get to know that much about her. I thought that the psychology of all the characters was pretty thin in this movie. So it was up to the actors to really bring some life to them, which actually, again, ties it into Marvel films, doesn't it? But when you got Vanessa Kirby, you are going to have some good acting in a scene. I mean, again, I have no idea how accurate any of this film was. It's been lambasted in France by um, French historians who say that it is, well, anti-French. Um, but they also... It, it's not. I'm not sure why they would say it's anti-French. But then again, I'm not French. It's uh, Because it's an Englishman making a movie about France. It is, and they might say that Napoleon is... I don't know, I mean, I'd, I'd have to read some of that. I, I didn't think it was anti-French, to be honest. You can't, it's in French. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Google Translate, my friend. Google Translate. Le merde. Um, <laughs> And there are lots of apparent historical inaccuracies in this, to which Ridley Scott just laughed an interview and said, well, okay, were you there? A lot of history is just conjecture anyway. I mean, and which is true. I mean, you know, even someone's diaries are going to be told from a certain point of view. But Napoleon's letters to Josephine were stolen by a valet, and you do get the Napoleon letters, because doesn't what's his name in succession, get them as a wedding present from Logan, the eldest son in succession. Oh, Kendall. No, no, the one played by Alan Rook. Oh, Connor. Connor. I think he gets Napoleon letters as a, as a wedding present from Logan because Logan doesn't want to go to the wedding because he wants to close a business deal. And also, you know that Connor doesn't read French. Sure. <laughs> yeah, indeed, but he'd be able to... <laughs> 
employed someone who would tell him. <laughs> but yeah, but I thought that Vanessa Kirby was good. What she had to work with was not quite as good. What do you think of her? Because to a degree, she remains a bit of a cipher. And she's usually viewed through the lens of her relationship with Napoleon, who can be, you know, is a great military leader, but is also, like, pathetic and clingy and... You know, even when they're exes, that she write letters to him. Yeah. Like, I want a letter a day. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> Again, on one hand, this is a spoiler. On the other hand, this is also history. This is Oh, what... like anyone knows that. Like anyone knows anything about Napoleon, to be honest. It's uh, apart from the fact that he was short, which apparently is not true either. He was about five foot seven. I know that he had a golden arm. Because of... Well, because of Time Bandits. Yes. <laughs> the proper Napoleon film. <laughs> It is quite well done in the film that he is a little bit shorter than other people. He kind of comes up to people's chins and stuff. But it's never really lent into, which I thought was actually quite good. Because it's like, well, not everyone was particularly tall at that time. Uh, oh, no, now I wish they had like a series of visual gags where like nobody's height is consistent over the course of the film. <laughs> yeah, that would be. But no, I thought that she was, I mean, it was interesting in terms of how she was very sexually progressive, you could say. So out of her time there. And he was incredibly sexually callow and... There's a lot of the... I mean, yeah, he was not a very good lover by all accounts. Well, yeah, according to this film. By all accounts. And there's somewhere like Napoleon Bonaparte off there in the afterlife going, fuck off! Like, for fuck's sake! It was amazing! <laughs> but it is one of those things where it's like, behind every great man is a great woman. And this is one of those things where there was an element of that. I thought it was quite good in the way that he kept putting words into her mouth. Like he would say, this is what you mean. And he would tell her what to say sometimes. And there's one point when he casually slaps her. And that got a bit of a reaction from the audience. And I thought, well, I'm kind of glad that I'm seeing this stuff in a historical film. Because, yeah, these people would be monsters by today's standards. And she was property. She absolutely understood him. Knew how to play him. But you do get a sense that they loved each other. uh, Even though they were both deeply flawed and Napoleon was really flawed. But yes, he was the man. He had all the power. So therefore, he would tell her what to say, and he, particularly if it made him feel good. And that element of it occurred a few times in the film. I thought, kind of glad that we're seeing something that shows the social structure of this and the gender structure of this time. So that was interesting. So there were kind of pockets of that sort of stuff in the film. It's written by David Scarper. I don't know, his track record is... He did The Last Castle, which is a pretty good film. It's a military prison film with Robert Redford and James Gandolfini. I actually have a bit of a soft spot for that. So he wrote that remake of The Day of the Earth is Still that wasn't very good. He did All the Money in the World, which I haven't seen, but you say is okay. Okay, it's... Um, he did The Man in the High Castle. But I think this was Ridley Scott's vision more than anyone else's, really. There's a scene where a guy in it talks about succulent breakfast yes. which, which i don't know if that's a very obscure reference to the uh i don't know if you're aware of the succulent chinese meal meme no i think it's... it might have been more something taken from a diary or an account from the time maybe and democracy manifest meme where a basically a, it's a video of a man being arrested at a chinese restaurant in australia in the early 90s and to quote the wikipedia article as the police arrest him he exclaims various remarks such as this is democracy manifest get your hand off my penis what is the charge eating a meal, a succulent Chinese meal? And after an aborted attempt by a police officer to headlock him, you know your judo well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I might stand corrected then because maybe it was because it's a similar kind of scene where someone is accosted whilst having their succulent just, breakfast. Just, just the worst use of the word succulent. It's like, is Ridley Scott doing a meme? Possibly. But I like that line because it's like, another thing that you got from the time was that food was quite important food like fruit and just having food because of course one of the reasons 
for the French Revolution was that the people were starving and as Marie Antoinette didn't say let them eat cake she actually meant, but the brioche, sentiment... she meant brioche didn't she yeah she, yeah, she said let them eat brioche <laughs> And, but the sentiment was there because people were starving. And I liked the fact that at a time, it was a time when life would be harder. You didn't have Netflix. I mean, my God. So therefore breakfast... But to me, at least you had Apple TV on, yeah. which, on which Napoleon will appear. <laughs> That's right. But really, could you imagine a world where you've just got Apple TV? Oh my God, the living would never be the dead. The monarch, monarch legacy of monsters is pretty good. Yeah, fine. And the three other shows I've got on there... They have got Severance on there, and Severance is brilliant. Although, who knows if we'll get a season two of that. Anyway, that moment really got across, like, this is breakfast. And I mean, it's a very nice breakfast. But actually, it was like a boiled egg and toast and stuff, wasn't it? With those sort of words that, again, just have an element of truth or yeah. or ring true to them. Yeah, when, they're, when they're, they're like, oh, fuck off, I'm, I'm eating breakfast. You're like, we're all one people. <laughs> I feel I feel you Frenchmen from centuries ago. But oh, you're like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because breakfast is the best meal of that. I love breakfast great meal that one of the things the trailer doesn't do i don't think or i don't actually remember it and i've seen that trailer a lot because it has played in front of every single film that we've seen this year it doesn't show the latter stages of the film and i didn't know where the film was going to end and it was like oh we're actually going to see this as well this is good and there was an element i didn't know was in the film and i was really happy that it was and uh it was a nice climax of the movie basically yes anything else about napoleon yeah, there were points in it where I was, and I think I said this to you, there's a man standing next to him, you know, that he's on the back, he's on the field of battle, surrounded by armed troops. I know that he was incredibly, you know, he was beloved and charismatic, but did anybody from his own side ever just think, well, they clearly thought, ever try and just take a shot at him? <laughs> because it's like, listen, I'm about to walk into a massacre. If I just shoot him in the head, I think this just ends. But you can say that about so many... Well, every dictator, basically. It's like, why did no one kill him? And it's like, because he was surrounded by people who loved him. And that's just... it's And it is absolutely bizarre that these weird people just get such a cult around them. Yeah, I love the fact that the French Revolution, which is absolutely fascinating, and just set the template for all modern revolutions. Like, it starts with the highest ideals. The people running it quickly just become absolutely power-crazed and become just what they were trying to overthrow or even worse get overthrown by people with the highest ideals and it just goes round and round and round for decades the french revolution went on for decades and then you have napoleon who kind of uh, declares himself the highest authority in the land literally crowns himself literally crowns himself that's in the trailer while saying none of this betrays the spirit of the revolution which was all about equality like yeah egalite fraternity liberty it's like but it all does you've just brought back the monarchy and that stuff, I thought, was very well done. Just well, was, in the madness of absolute power corrupting absolutely. I know he wasn't around a lot because he was off waging war. Was Napoleon a good emperor? Is he, like, well regarded? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because he was a dictator. And the film does have him do some pretty... Well, there's one scene of showing him absolutely willing to do things to the citizenry that is pretty horrible to quell a rebellion. But I'm not sure if he's still seen as, like, a national hero in France. I mean, he's body does still kind of lie in st- almost in state at the Hotel des Invalides. Oh, does it? Yeah. Oh, okay, right. You can, well, you can go and see his, his coffin. And yeah. His... Have you seen it? Yeah. All right. And? It's a big coffin in the middle of a room. <laughs> yeah, what's the room like? Is it, is it spectacle? Is it like a... It, 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 is it grand? It, it, is, it, it, is, it, it, is it a celebration? Yeah, well, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a tourist attraction. I guess I guess they'd say, well, this is where he was laid in the state. We're not going to fucking move him. <laughs> like, yeah. Unless you were embarrassed by him. But presumably they're not. No. So it is a celebration of the man then. Yeah, it's definitely... They've not, like, tucked him in a corner. They've no. not, like... 
I did not like if you know, Hitler's body had survived the war and they'd said, well, yeah, we just got him there so you can have a look at him. Um, because and that's one thing. Like at the end, the film does make a make a very clear point about this man is responsible for a great many deaths. Mm. So there were interesting elements like that because a lot of it's quite funny and he is quite buffoonish. And another director would have played those two off against each other in a much more interesting way and maybe yeah. a slightly more disturbing way. Um, like I did spend a lot of the film thinking what would Christopher Nolan have done with this I don't think he would have had as many on-screen titles to explain who people were I think a more gifted director at kind of saying here's as much as you need to know about these characters to get the gist of the story I'm not just going to put on a thing saying this is this person this is this person yeah he would have done the juxtaposition of childish buffoon but brilliant with the absolute destruction of life that's happening over his reign Oppenheimer (laughs) in terms of catching the duality or the conflict and you know that he would have made them do the fucking accents you know that you know that no one would have been like, oh, I don't know would he that would have been interesting maybe Miles Jupp is in this film yes. Miles Jupp is in Napoleon and he does an Austrian accent and he's actually very good in the very very brief screen time he has Oppenheim was a good comparison actually because of course that was another massive biopic this year I am become French destroyer of worlds. <laughs> yeah, or conqueror of worlds. One of the things, actually, that the French historians have taken issue with is that he never fired upon the pyramids, which is in the trailer again. And it's like, yeah, but come on. Artistic license, right? And also symbolism. The pyramids, one of the seven they, wonders of the world. They did, he did fire on the Sphinx, though, didn't he? And let me check that, because I'm pretty sure like that I was always taught that he did fire on the Sphinx. But that's the thing, is that even if this is all now being questioned, this is a film. There is a certain amount of symbolism going on here. The pyramids uh, represented a nation and a people at the height of their ability, and they created one of the wonders of the world. Now we have someone who's coming along and using the height of technology to show that things have advanced and that he's going to fire upon them because he is a greater man. He has a more powerful army than they do. He is a more powerful nation. Even if that didn't happen, that works as symbolism in a very, I think, quite elegant way. And it's also, you know, a pretty good shot. Although it's hard to miss the pyramid, isn't it, when you've got a cannon? If, but... <laughs> if there's one thing I've learned from French cinema is they don't like symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the other things, actually, that I was going to say is that there was a film made in, and I should know this, I think it was 1927, called Napoleon. Napoleon. Yeah, it's, it's 1927. Yeah, called Napoleon by Abel Gantz. And it's over five hours uh, you can get it on BFI Blu-ray. Uh, I saw it a couple of years ago at the Royal Festival Hall with a full orchestra. It was very well scheduled in terms of its... Uh, just over five hours, I think. But the schedule was eight and a half hours. So they put a lot of breaks in it. It was a full day experience, which is the best way to watch that movie because you can't just sit down and watch a five-hour silent film, even though the film itself, and you could just feel it in the audience, everyone was thinking, this is much easier than I thought it was going to be. Because silent films, it's like, well, they were made to entertain the masses. It was seen... Cinema was seen as a lower art form. It wasn't theatre. This is meant to be accessible. It's meant to be accessible. But you've had some of the greatest artists of all time working in the silent era. And I think Avril Gantz was one of them. One of my favourite films of this year is a silent film. So, like... Which is... Or do you um, want to say at the end of the year review? Well, yeah, I, I, think I've, I think I mentioned it on the podcast earlier in the year. And it will definitely come up in the end of year review. Is um, Sherlock Holmes Jr. Mm. It's not quite... Although I'd love to... I'd now want to see a Napoleon film in the style of Buster Keaton. I think that'd be... Yes, indeed. That way it would be... Yeah, he'd have been a great Napoleon. Yes, he would have been a very, very good Napoleon. The guy who plays Napoleon in Napoleon, the Abelgans film, is Albert Dudonnet. He's a good Napoleon. It's a really good film. And it's playing at the IMAX at the beginning of December, the BFI IMAX. 
and I strongly recommend that everyone goes and sees it if you're in London. I mean, it is, again, I think they're doing it in the same way that there's going to be intervals. I'm not sure if it's going to be eight hours, but there will be intervals. And on that IMAX screen, it'll be amazing. Annoyingly, I'm away that weekend. What weekend um, is that? Uh, I think it's playing the 3rd of December. Oh, I'm in Poland. Right. So we're both away. So annoying, because it would be good to go and see it on that big IMAX screen. Anyway, it's more of a celebration of the man, I think, from what I can remember, than this film. And it's more about the French Revolution. There's a huge chunks of it take place during the French Revolution and the terror. Uh, so the terror was a period where Robespierre said, oh, they're all getting the revolution wrong and all the aristocrats are getting the revolution wrong. I think I am therefore justified in getting hundreds of them um, and tying them up with ropes and firing cannons at them, which is what happened. So there's a lot of it that's also about that period too. But it's a great film. I mean, it is one of the best films ever made. And Bram Stoker's Dracula takes quite a lot from it. <laughs> Relying on the fact that nobody at that point... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, dude. It's like, no one's going to know where this came from. It's an amazing shot. It's like, yeah, it's like, well, it's like Tarantino lifting from the French New Wave. It's like... Or from Hong Kong action oh, yeah, films yeah. he never thought would travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's <laughs> Pan's like, Labyrinth actually has a shot from Napoleon in it that's one of the best shots as well. So, yeah, uh, well, you know, when you're making a five-hour film, you've got lots of opportunities to get some good stuff in there. Absolutely. And there's actually... The scene when he's courting Josephine, which happens quite late in the movie, is quite slow. Some people were a little bit restless at that point, and I just got the impression that everyone was thinking, oh, I thought the whole film was going to be like this, to be honest. It would all be quite hard work, but it's only really this bit. And and that does go on for quite a while, and it's like, oh, come on, we know they end up together. Get on with it. <laughs> I want to see the bit when it goes into widescreen, because it uses a very, very early version of widescreen at the end when the screen opens up. Brilliant! So this is a good movie. I am going to watch the four-hour cut when it goes on to Apple because it's yeah. going to release it in two parts, isn't it? Um, I'm going to watch it back-to-back with the five-hour Napoleon. Yes, indeed. Could you imagine I'm going to spend what, including loo breaks, will probably be about 11 hours watching just Napoleon. Be interesting. I mean, you'll see some great filmmaking in there. Other people in this film, so Rupert Everett, although we're not going to spoil who he plays, was good. Yeah. I was very, very happy he was in it, and he was good. And He's got a wonderful sneer. He does have a wonderful sneer. And I said afterwards, the only other person that could have played it as well, I think, is Stephen Fry. Maybe Stephen Fry's a little bit too old now, but I think he would have been good in the role as well. Um, well, he must be roughly similar age. Yeah, mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. Actually, Stephen Fry would have been good in the role as well. And of course, Rupert Everett recently played um, Oscar Wilde in The Happy Prince. And as I said to you, you what's the connection between Oscar Wilde and Napoleon Bonaparte? Well, I did not get this. So what is it? The fact that um, Oscar Wilde's final words were, I'm going to battle to the death of the wallpaper, either it or or I must go. And the fact that historically, or at least um, Napoleon may have been killed by the wallpaper in terms of the lead content. (laughs) Which is a great bit of a trivia. (laughs) So yes, uh, Napoleon and Oscar Wilde, both killed by the wallpaper. Yes. (laughs) I'm trying to think of any other big screen Napoleons. Rod Steiger plays a good Napoleon in Waterloo, which I think was the early 70s. That's an interesting movie. That's worth looking at. Ian Holm, of course, Time Bandits, <laughs> is a good Napoleon. Ian Holm, of course, who of course, worked with Ridley Scott in Alien. Yes, of course he did. It all ties in. And, of course, another great Napoleon would be... And I think he even might be played by a Frenchman, but I could be totally wrong. But we're about to find out. Are you looking at Bill and Ted? I am looking at Bill and Ted. <laughs> so Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, in which he does speak French. He is a Napoleon that speaks French. Terry Camilleri. So presumably he is of Italian descent. Um, <laughs> it's all the same. It's all European to those crazy, crazy Americans. 
So I think just on the by the virtue. He was of born him, in Malta. Okay. By um, the virtue of him speaking, well, where some of Napoleon was shot. That's right. Yes. On by virtue of him speaking French, is he still the most? Well, actually, presumably he speaks French in the 1927 film as well. We don't speak in it because it's silent. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. But the intertitle was a French. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so and he's that, played by a French man, yeah. so I'm sure that he was speaking French when it was being made. Maybe. <laughs> but in terms of actual dialogue, Napoleon from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is the most historically accurate. I think that's what we're saying. It is interesting that these really big directors who are known for having quite almost like a dictatorial style all wanted to have a go at Napoleon. Because, of course, do you know who was going to play Napoleon in the Kubrick version? Who? Jack Nicholson. That would have been fascinating. And there is a book about Kubrick's Napoleon because he did so much... much work, yeah, prep work for it. Though. Yeah, years of pre-production. So there were costumes being made, there were concept sketches, there was a full script, there was actually a shooting schedule... He negotiated with an army, or with a government to use their army. And it might have been Austria. I could be wrong about that. He did talk with a European army, sorry, a European government about using their army because it would be cheaper than hiring extras. And also they would be military trained. And he was going to costume them all. It was going to be, I mean, it's one of the great unmade movies. It would be fascinating to see what he would have done with Napoleon. I'm sure Jack Nicholson would have been, you know, Jack Nicholson, great actor. I just feel like he would have also been distracting in that role. I don't know. I, just, I'm uh, not sure. I think it's it's such a big role. And it would have been such a big film. I think he would have been able to contain him. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons why The Shining, he's so big in The Shining, is because it's like, well, there are four people in The Shining, basically, aren't there, really? I mean, we got the twins as well, and the woman in the bath, and the uh, blowjob dog man. <laughs> as I believe he is billed. Yes. But it's one of those where... And, it, and he is a tyrant in an empty hotel, whereas a Napoleon, with all the thousands of extra stars, you need a movie star... I think at that time, it's interesting that Joaquin Phoenix, yeah, Joker did do a billion. He is known. Not sure if he's a movie star of the same, well, yeah, he isn't of the same stature as Nicholson was during the 70s. And he's doing um, the second Joker movie, Joker Folie Adieu, yeah. with Lady Gaga, who of course worked with Ridley Scott in House of Gucci. Yep. And she was good in that. House of Gucci, which isn't, I don't think, as terrible as everyone else said. It is... It's fun. It's... It's... It's, uh, it's mad. Yeah. Maybe that's why no one does an accent, accent in this film, because everyone was doing accents in House of Gucci, and it turned out to be interesting. <laughs> a bold artistic choice. I mean, Jared Leto was... Uh, and he had an accent, didn't he? It's weird. His accent in that film is the accent of a lot of dubbed um, Italian thrillers and horror films from the 70s. And it's like, well, is this just an accent that was made up by non-Italians for dubbed movies that Jared Leto thinks is a real accent. It's a mia, Jared Leto. It's mia. What have I done? I sold my shares. <laughs> that said, though, that scene when he does say to his dad, played by Al Pacino, I think I've fucked the company. And Al Pacino realises the enormity of how much his son has fucked it all up. Even though they are really doing some big accent acting... I actually think that's quite a moving scene. But yeah, there was a lot of accent work in House of Gucci, the way over long House of Gucci. Uh, so maybe that was, he thought, actually, on this one, maybe they won't be doing Inspector Clouseau in this one. <laughs> I am Napoleon Benepit. <laughs> Never interrupt your enemy when they are booking a room. <laughs> Uh, so yes, um, accent works fine as long as it's kind of Western Europe, it turns out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think that was Napoleon. I'd say go and see it. As I said, just the grandeur and splendour and epicness of it just won me over. So it's probably the Ridley Scott film that I've enjoyed most since The Martian, although I haven't seen The Last Duel, and I actually do want to see The Last Duel now. I kind of forgot that existed, but yes, that would be interesting to see another historical 
epic, which I think is also about gender politics, right? I mean, it's all... Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's got a great cast. Um, Jodie Comer, yes, Adam Driver, yep. um, Ma- Matt, da- Matt Damon. Yeah. Jodie um, Comer, who was meant to be in Napoleon. Was she, was, she was meant to be Josephine, but oh, there, was, wow. there was a scheduling conflict. Oh, oh God, was it the Bike Riders? Possibly. Could you imagine that? Oh, yeah, I was in the Bike Riders. Well, I didn't like it, but my review on my website, Electric Shadows, someone responded to it saying, I totally disagree with all of this, and just basically wrote their review. Yeah, and I kind of wrote back saying, that's one of the great things about cinema, right? Is that you can see the exact same thing and come out with and one person And different... one person can be completely wrong about it. <laughs> yeah, indeed. As friend of the podcast again, Adrian Zat would say about me and the piano teacher. Um, it's Michael Haneke, who isn't French, I think is Austrian, but it's a French film with Isabella Pair. She plays a piano teacher, but it's a very, very dark psychosexual movie. She's very twisted by her upbringing, and she has an affair with a student. And I thought it was one of the best films of the year. It was actually my second favourite film of the year. When I saw it at the London Film Festival, my favourite film was Amelie. They are quite different, but, you know, French. Um, And when I saw that at London Film Festival with a friend of the podcast, Adrian Zach, at the end, I leant over and said, well, that's one of the best films of next year, right? Because it was getting released the next year in the UK. And he said... That was one of the worst fucking films I've ever seen. I said, isn't that the best thing, the most amazing thing about cinema? I was sitting here, you were sitting right next to me, exactly the same thing happened on screen, and we walk out with these wildly different opinions. And he went, no, that was just shit. Um, I don't think he's right on that. The Piano Teacher is a very good film and you should watch it. Not one to watch with your mum. There was an elderly couple who got up and left. I think they thought that a film called The Piano Teacher might have been slightly... Quite some, genteel. Something a bit different and not what this was. There's so little actual playing of the piano. I don't think there is a huge amount of playing the piano in it, actually. I will need to watch it well, again. Anyway, it's, it's, it's playing the piano, he says, <laughs> doing inverted commas. Yeah. It has a haunting final couple of shots. There is a reaction shot that Isabella Pair does that is such a brilliant piece of acting in a split second. And it's just, oof, amazing. Anyway, that's the piano teacher. Go and watch that as well. Well, that was Napoleon. God, the next one might be Wonka. Who knows what that's going to be like? <laughs> Hope it's good. It's by the team behind Paddington, so yeah. What's the tag? What's the tagline for the for Wonka? Which I thought would equally apply to Napoleon. It's like no, oh, something about dreams. Isn't yeah. It? So let me look that up. <laughs> Every good thing in this world started with a dream. Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay. Very quickly before we go, shout out to Bottoms. So Bottoms is the new film by Emma Zeligman, stars Rachel Sennett. They previously did a film called Shiva Baby, which was a very, very good film. This one is also a comedy. Um, It's a teen comedy about these high school girls who start a lesbian fight club to pick up cheerleaders. It is... Well, I preferred it to Napoleon, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, so Bottoms, which is a film that just hasn't done well anywhere, really. How is Lesbian Comedy Fight Club not done well? I know. But like Heathers, I think it's destined for cult status. It actually reminded me a lot of Heathers. There's a lot of the surrealness of Heathers is in the film as well. It just has some of the best laugh out loud moments of the year. Yeah, so Bottoms, you should check that out. I would imagine it will be speeding its way to a streaming service near you soon because it hasn't done very well at the cinema. But yeah, so Wonka next. Uh, Anything else to say about Napoleon? No. (laughs) Anyway, I think we've offended the French enough. So. Also, didn't the house that Josephine ends up in is called Malmaison. Yes. Which is, as far as I know, means bad house. Yes, it's indeed, like, yes. Why did It's quite nice. It looked lovely. Yes, I thought that Malmaison was... Uh, so that's an interesting... Was that deliberate that they put it there? Anyway. Well, should we go out with plugs? 
yeah, if you're looking for me online, uh, you can well really only find my website at this point. Um, of all the film sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. Actually, that said, you can follow me on Letterboxd, Robert M. Wallace. I'm apparently doing Letterboxd wrong because my films aren't appearing when I watch them, even though I add them. I'm, I think I'm doing you them wrong. You put them into the diary? No. I said no. that last time. <laughs> I know. I need to... I'm gonna, I'm, I, 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 I've got an Excel doc which has the dates of... has all the films I've watched this year and the dates of it. Before the end of this year, I will just do the admin of going through and adding them. Or just start it from now, because I don't think you'll get around to putting the 500 films you've seen or something into Letterboxd. That would take I'll, hours. Yeah, I'll, 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 just start I'll, doing it now. I'll do it while watching Napoleon. Well, just start doing it now. <laughs> so at least some are done. And then I can look at what you've been watching. Because you don't come up on my thing unless I go into your page and say, all oh, right, so I saw that. But it's good that you're on Letterboxd and you have been watching some very interesting movies. And the Marvels. And the Marvels. Oh, I'm sorry, that was unfair. We also have another podcast, which we've referenced on this podcast. About the duelists. About the duelists. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, about another um, film about two uh, combatants with a storied history, one of whom is a French actor and the other whom, of whom is playing a Russian, called Highlander. <laughs> Which is that the, was the most arcane introduction to that film ever, and there've been some pretty arcane introductions. I think, to I think, I think yeah, you know, it's it's fucking Highlander. You, if you, if you, <laughs> you know, you know Highlander. Um, uh, the podcast is this is scene by scene analysis. The podcast is called Another Time McLeod, and you can listen to that wherever you're listening to this. Um, you can drop us a Highlander themed email at who wants to pod forever at gmail dot com. Yeah, it's Highlander. It's good. I think it's good. We think it's good. We think yeah. it's good. Like we, yeah, did seven, we did 70 episodes on it, so... That's right, yes. Cool, thank you very much. And yeah, if you want to check out my writing, you can do that at electric-shadows.com. You can find me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash robdan. What's your Letterboxd handle? I believe it's Robert M. Wallace. That tends to be my go-to. Um, the M makes it classy. It does. If you want to follow the podcast, then you can do that on Twitter for the time it has left at um, Movie Robcast. You can follow us on Instagram at The Movie Robcast. And if you want to send us an email about movies, then you can do that at MovieRobcast at gmail.com. If you've liked what you've heard, <laughs> then please do rate and or review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's always much appreciated. It helps us with the pesky algorithms and yeah, it's always great to get feedback, to be honest. So uh, thanks for that. We will come at you again with some chocolatey goodness, hopefully. And we'll speak to you again very soon. Ciao. <laughs> au revoir, au revoir, au revoir. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were saying ciao because that was the joke. Well, I, I made it into two jokes. You did. I said ciao, and then I was like, oh, then I corrected myself, therefore. That's right. So sayonara. But you just assured me that I could speak. Sit down inside the car. We're not assuring anything. We're under arrest. Look, I'm under what? Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. Have a look at the headlock here. See that chap over there? Get your hand off my penis! This is the bloke who got me on the penis before. Get some cups. Why did you do this to me? in the car. Get some cups. For what reason? What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? Oh, that's a nice headlock, sir. Oh, ah, yes. I see that you know your judo well. Good one. And you, sir? 
Are you waiting to receive my limp penis? How dare get your hands on me? Tata and farewell. One cup, look. <laughs> I'm the first to admit when I make a mistake. I simply never do. Oh, that's a nice headlock, sir. <laughs>